Well, turn with me to John, John, I mean Matthew. Boy, I'm going back several years. Took me three years to go through John. It's going to take more than that to go through Matthew. Um, Matthew chapter 10. Uh, begin, beginning, we're, we're left off. We Well, I'm going to review some, starting with verse 7. But uh, our passage is verses 5 to 15. And we saw that uh, Jesus has sent out the 12 disciples. And he's told them, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And uh, then he gives them a clear message to give. And he says, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We saw many people, you know, fail to understand and believe the gospel because they haven't, they've never heard it clearly presented. Uh, and part of the problem is that we don't stick with the central message, we clutter it up with a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, instead of telling them that we're a follower of Jesus Christ and then going into a clear, simple gospel presentation, we divert off into trying to answer their questions. And they start asking us about our church and we start trying to explain what a non-denominational evangelical church is. And uh, we end up adding a lot of, a, bun a whole bunch of secondary matters and human interpretations to the conversation that do nothing but confuse the issue. Uh, when you open your mouth, make sure you talk about God's goals and projects and not your own. And uh, preach the kingdom, the rule and reign of God, that God's kingdom will, uh, his kingdom uh, is coming to earth. In scripture, we see the kingdom of heaven in three ways. We mentioned these last time. It's seen first in conversion, when a person enters the sovereign rule of God by trusting in Christ for salvation. Second, it's seen in consecration. As believers live out the divine principles of God's revelation by obedience to his word. And third, the kingdom is seen in its glorious millennial form when Christ returns to the earth to establish it and rule it in person and sets up his eternal kingdom. And until that time, we preach the central message of the kingdom, which is about the king. You must get to the point of telling people about the king, Jesus Christ, who came and died for sinners like them and that by repentance from sin, and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of those sins, they can have peace with God and eternal life in heaven. Unless you tell them that, you haven't presented the gospel. And so then after giving them this clear message, Jesus moves on and he gives them elements that are going to make their uh, in the message, their ministry effective. And the fourth component that we come to then is the confirming credentials. Verse 8, he says, heal the sick, raise the dead. Cleanse the lepers, cast out demons freely. You receive freely. Give. Those are the credential. Those are the credentials of the apostles, and those credentials were the key to marking them out as representatives of God. They were the proof of apostleship. Uh, the type, the types of miracles that Jesus gave them authority to do were all designed to demonstrate the character of God and the nature of His kingdom. God cares for people who are hurting and suffering, and these miracles demonstrated the mercy of God. And so that was the first credential. It was compassion and mercy for people who suffer. Uh, in contrast, false prophets and false teachers are merciless. They are without compassion. Uh, they use and abuse people. They will promise the sickly, poor uh, healing and blessings if they'll just give what little money they have to their ministry. Um, and they have no thought for the needy. And But those who represent our Lord 
are sympathetic and tender. They're drawn to the sick and the poor. What is our credential? We, we can't heal the sick. We can't cleanse the lepers. We're, we're not living in the, uh, an apostolic era. Uh, but we can show the compassion of Christ. It's meant to be demonstrated through those things. Uh, there's, we, there's another credential that the disciples had. That was to raise the dead and cast out demons. And I combine those two because both have to do with using God's power to invade the kingdom of darkness and overcome that kingdom. Uh, those gifts of miraculous power were restricted to the apostolic age, and no one today has the power and authority that Jesus gave to his apostles to do such. But though it's shown in less dramatic and physically awesome ways, the mark of divine power still validates the work of those God sends out to do his will. The ministry of the true servant of the Lord is characterized by God's power in redeeming lives, giving divine spiritual understanding, and bringing spiritual growth. Uh, when you see someone who truly represents God, you're going to see power. It's not the power to physically raise the dead. It's the power to raise the spiritually dead through the gospel of Jesus Christ, to see people redeemed. The third credential that he gave is found at the end of verse 8. Freely you receive, freely give. What did they receive freely and which in turn they were to give freely? Well, these supernatural abilities to heal the sick and raise the dead, cleanse the lepers and cast out demons. Uh, they didn't have those abilities on their own. Jesus freely had given them to the disciples. So the third credential of the servant of the Lord is unselfishness, that is selfless service. Jesus says you received it free of charge, you give it free of charge. Don't ever charge anyone for your ministry. Don't ever put a price on your ministry or your power. False teachers, though, are always interested in their own personal enrichment. They're always in it for their own gain. Uh, there's always a price for their service. You find someone who claims to represent Jesus Christ, it, he says he represents Jesus, but if he puts a price on his ministry and his service, I'll show you someone who just priced himself out of the blessing of God. Uh, Peter tells the elders to shepherd the flock, but not for sordid gain. Paul told Timothy that an elder is to be free from the love of money. Uh, I, I still remember being in El Salvador, and a local man had died. Actually, he was murdered. Uh, he was one of those people who had an extensive criminal history, and someone took their revenge upon him. Uh, and uh, uh, his parents went to the local Catholic priest, and they had nothing. These people have nothing. But the priest wanted $5 to do the service. And uh, so um, Michael Schott from SOS volunteered to do it because it was a great opportunity to present the gospel to a whole group of people. So there was no church service. Everything was done out in the cemetery. But uh, uh, there was probably... 150 people out there in a cemetery who all heard the gospel for the first time that day. <laughs> so, uh, but we didn't charge him. Uh, Michael didn't charge him. So does this mean, yes? Well, the, I believe that, that the miracles were for the apostolic age. Mm -hmm. But then you have people who say, well, you know, it's the same thing today because Jesus said that these things that I do and greater things you will do also. 
Well, he wasn't referring to his miracles uh, about that you're going to do greater things. You're going to transform lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ for eternity. Uh, they're transformed. They're healed. Spiritual healing comes to them. Um, you know, many times when I pray for people who are deathly sick and I pray for their healing, in my heart, I'm, I may not say it publicly, but in my heart I'm thinking, maybe, Lord, heal them to heaven. So, well, getting back to this about freely giving and not charging and all the rest, does this mean we don't pay, shouldn't pay our pastors? No. That's that we should just expect them to get by on whatever somebody wants to give them. No. No. It doesn't mean that. And that brings us to the next mark, and this is where we left off last time. And that is that an effective missionary or pastor or representative of our Lord has a confident faith. A confident faith. Look at verses 9 and 10. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. The fifth principle of ministry practically illustrated in this passage is that of confidently trusting God for whatever is needed. The apostles were not only uh, were not to demand payment for their services, but they were not to amass a great amount of money in advance of their mission. Uh, don't think I'm going to go, but first of all, I've got to save up a whole bunch of money to support me. Uh, I mean, if I'm not going to charge anyone and just freely give them what I freely receive, then it's obvious that I've got to support myself. So as soon as I get some savings collected to support myself, then I'll be on my way. Uh, Jesus says, don't take any money at all. Uh, and he lists gold, silver, and copper. Those three metals represented the various coinages in use at that time in descending order of value. Uh, but not only that, he says, don't take a bag of supplies. Now, that's what that word translated bag there refers to. It was a leather bag that travelers typically carried with them that was usually loaded with food and their cloak and any other supplies they might need. Uh, we do the same thing today. We call it luggage. Uh, but uh, he says, and don't take a second coat or an extra pair of sandals or an extra staff. He's not saying they can't take the coat they've got on or the, 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 the sandals they're wearing or the one staff that they use when walking on the rough roads and paths of Galilee, but they weren't supposed to take along extras. Uh, you say, wait a minute, I can't tell anybody my price for ministry and I can't take anything extra along with me. What am I supposed to do if my sandals wear out or my staff breaks or my coat gets torn. Well, then there's a spiritual principle at the end of verse 10. It says, for the worker is worthy of his support. Now, let me ask you, who made up that principle? God, God did. Uh, he says he will manage your resources. Uh, if he is the one who sent you out, if your ministry is truly his, he will provide for you. So you go out with confident faith in him. Uh, the ancient rabbis had followed that principle for many years. They were never to price anything. They were never to demand anything. They were never to ask for a fee, but always the people were to supply their needs. Uh, rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov wrote, He who receives a rabbi into his house or as his guest and lets him have his enjoyment from his possessions the scripture ascribes to him as if he had offered the continual offerings. They, they rightfully believed that God would bless those who provided food, clothing, shelter, and other aid to the teachers of his word. 
And so you have a double blessing here. God's man never has to be over-concerned with material things, but the people of God must see it as their duty to support him. He must not put a price on his ministry, but it is our responsibility before God to support those who feed us the word of God, because the worker is worthy of his support. You say, well, how sh should we do that? Well, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18 says the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. It isn't just honoring them with words. It's also honoring them by financially supporting them to meet their needs. And he says, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, all of the elders are to be teachers, but there are those who specifically labor at preaching and teaching. And when done well, that's hard work. Uh, for it says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 25.4. You have to let the ox eat some of the grain or it'll get weak and stop working or else die. And he says, and the labor is worthy of his wages. That's Luke 10.7 in our text here in Matthew 10.10. 10. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 9.14, the apostle Paul says the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. He didn't mean live what you preach. He meant be supported by your preaching. Now, here is where I have more freedom than the pastors who were on staff to talk about paying your shepherds. You see, I spent over 38 years in law enforcement working to receive my pension with a deliberate intention that I could one day serve the church on a full-time basis without charge. I wasn't sure if it would be here at Lakeside or elsewhere, but that was my goal. And so that's what I do now. I study, I teach, I administer, oversee various uh, aspects of the ministry, and I receive nothing from the church except whenever I happen to fill the pulpit. And because I'm working hard at preaching and teaching on those occasions, the elders have a policy of giving me an honorarium uh, for doing such. But otherwise, the church pays me nothing. So that gives me an extra measure of freedom to talk about how you should view the payment of your pastors for their ministry. Uh, because I'm not officially on staff, uh, I am able to serve our church and its pastors as the chairman of our salary review committee. It is a group made up of several men, including the elders who are not part of the church staff, as well as some other businessmen in our church. And these men strive to do as much as we can for our pastors, given the financial constraints that we have most of the time. But there are some people in our church who seem to think that we ought to keep our pastors living on the edge of poverty so that they will learn to depend upon the Lord to, to provide for them. Uh, they think that when it says Christians walk by faith and not by sight, that pastors, that means that pastors should live with daily and weekly fear about what would happen to them financially and that such concern will teach them to trust the Lord more. Uh, I know a pastor in another state whose salary is so low that his family qualifies for Medicaid in order to provide medical insurance for them. Uh, and yet the same people who pay their pastor that poor salary don't want to live that way themselves. Uh, they seem to feel that it's appropriate for pastors to live that way because it's somehow more spiritual to do such. Uh, now, have I ever had anyone say that directly to me? No. But I recall one year when we were only able to give our pastors a 1% raise, and the year before they had received nothing. 
because of the economy and our state of in, our level of income at the time. Uh, we couldn't afford to give them much, but we we wanted to show them that we were still concerned for them, so we gave them this small bump. And you know, we still had people who complained about that. Um, tells me a lot about their heart. Uh, it tells me they're people with a miserly, unthankful heart. Uh, that should never be the attitude of Christians. Christians should be known for being generous with everyone, especially with fellow believers and even more so with their pastors. Uh, listen, in as far as we are able, we ought to make sure that our pastors never have to wonder if they will be able to support their family on the salary we provide. We don't want anyone to validly accuse us of shortchanging our pastors. No pastor should ever have to leave our employment to go to another job because we've underpaid him for what he does. Let me just add that I, on this, I want to thank you for your generosity to me. Uh, even though I'm not on staff, through the years, several, several of you have blessed me with financial gifts of one type or another, whether in the form of a gift card or some books that I desired for study or whatever it was. It wasn't necessary for you to do that for me, but you did. And I have deeply appreciated your graciousness. So I'm not saying these things because of some slight on your part. And, and I'm, not, when I'm, I'm not speaking of anyone in this class when I speak of those with a miserly, stingy attitude. Uh, but such people do exist in our church. Uh, not many, but a few. Uh, and so I exhort you that if you encounter some of them, don't let their unbiblical attitude affect you. Uh, or infect you. Uh, tell them what the truth of Scripture is, that the hard-working elder is to be honored both in terms of respect and regard for what he does and in terms of financial remuneration. God is not honored by treating his servants poorly. So honor your pastors by paying them well for their labor and feeding you God's word. Pastors and those who go out in Christ's name have to live by faith. We're not allowed to put a price on our ministry. We're not allowed to make a demand for a certain amount, but to be unselfish and the responsibility to provide is God's. God says, I know the principle. I established it. And the principle is a faithful worker is worthy, and I will move through the people to meet the need. It's all up to him. Okay? Before I move on, let me pause. <laughs> Any thoughts or comments? I agree. <laughs> You He's got a different spiritual problem. But it was it was frustrating, very difficult. Yeah. What you said about being told that you know keeping poor that was in my very first ministry that was told to my face. Yeah. Keep the poor so you don't have to trust in the Lord. Yeah. Didn't last very long in that ministry. Yeah. Well, that brings us to the sixth principle, and this is where the balance comes together. This is what we call a settled contentment. A settled contentment. Look at verse 11. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it 
and stay at his house until you leave that city. Uh, the one who represents Christ and is sent out as an ambassador or a missionary for Christ has a divine commission, a central objective, a clear faith, confirming credentials, and a confident faith. He doesn't put a price on his ministry, and he trusts God to supply through others according to the diligence and faithfulness of his ministry. But the point here is that whatever he receives in that, he's to be content with it. Uh, there are, and this speaks to the guy Frank was just talking about, <laughs> the, uh, there are two implications for what Jesus teaches here. First, a person is to find a proper place to stay while ministering in a given location. And second, he is to be satisfied to remain there until the work is finished. Now notice that it says that whenever the disciples entered a village, they were to inquire who is worthy in it. Now what does that mean? Well, let me just say that it doesn't mean wealthy. Okay? They weren't to go into town looking to find out who the rich people were in the towns and cozying up to them to gain support. Uh, the word means deserving, honorable, and admirable, worthy. It refers to someone whose character and lifestyle, integrity and morality uh, would be a fitting place for them to stay. If they went into a town and stayed uh, in a home filled with the unregenerate, vile, wicked people who were shunned by the community for their sinfulness, when they walked out of that door and started trying to preach the message of God's holiness and righteousness and coming kingdom, no one would listen to them because of whom the disciples were associating themselves. They would be identified with the unholiness of the place in which they were staying. That's why they would stay in homes rather than the inns of those days. Inns were really nothing more than brothels upstairs and a bar downstairs. Uh, and so no self-respecting Jew would stay in such a disreputable place. So Jesus says, guys, find a place that's worthy for the occupancy of a representative of me and the Father. Uh, be careful where you stay, but when you find that kind of place, stay at his house until you leave that city. In other words, stay there the whole time. Now, under the generally understood rules of hospitality among the Jews in those days, a visitor would stay no more than three days, and then they would move on unless the homeowner asked them to stay longer. Now, when the disciples went there, it would almost always have been a humble little house with food that the average person ate during those days, bread, dried fish, and some vegetables. Uh, it wasn't anything fancy, but that wasn't the issue. The issue was the character and worthiness of the host. And while they were staying there, if one of the local residents who was wealthy came to them and said, hey, there's no need for you to stay in this house. Sure, the guy who lives here is a nice guy, but why stay in his house, his little tiny place? Come Come stay at my house. We have a large estate up on the hill outside of town with two large baths that are so big they're like swimming pools. We have a large private suite just for you that you can stay in and horse-drawn wagons to take you wherever you want to go. Now you can imagine how tempting it would be to run up the hill with a wealthy guy. But Jesus solved that issue for them right here. He says, once you've determined who is a worthy, honorable person to stay with, and he invites you in, 
Stay there until you leave that town. Be content. Remember this. If God wants you in the estate up on the hill, then they'll meet you first when you get to town. The point here is that wherever it is that God in his providence takes you, be content to stay there. Don't always be trying to see how much comfort you can generate for yourself. Have an attitude of settled contentment. Contentment is so elusive, isn't it? Paul was warning Timothy about those who think that godliness is a means of financial gain and wealth. And then he says that godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Some people never know that experience of contentment. Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. Public ministry would lead to hospitable invitations. And so they were to be careful not to lodge in a disreputable place and not to start climbing a social ladder, but to concentrate on the business at hand. Let me just mention what we do today here at Lakeside whenever we have a special speaker uh, come to town to speak here. Through the years, we've had people who've invited them to stay in their homes, and that's wonderful. If, if you have been one of those people, I commend you. Uh, Marsh and I have done the same in the past, but recently what we do at, in the church is uh, we schedule a nice hotel room for our guest speaker. Uh, it gives them privacy that they don't get when they stay in someone's home. Uh, and we always choose a nice hotel that includes a hot breakfast for them. Uh, we never pick a hotel that's known as a hangout for drug addicts and prostitutes. Uh, it's a safety issue as well as for their own reputation. Uh, we want to honor them by having them stay in a nice, safe, comfortable environment. Well, let's move to our seventh point, which is that an effective representative of Jesus Christ has a concentration on those who are receptive. A concentration on those who are receptive. Look at verse 12 and the first part of 13. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. Now the house to which Jesus is referring here applies not only to the house of the worthy people who hosted them in verses 10 and 11, but also to the homes of anyone else in town. Uh, that's clear from the contrast that's given in verses 13 and 14 that we'll get to. So when the disciples entered a town or city or village, they were to find a worthy host to stay with, and then they were to go door to door sharing the good news of the kingdom and performing acts of mercy, healing the sick, casting out demons. And as they went to the homes in that city, they were to give it your greeting, he says. Now what is the greeting? Well, it was the common Jewish greeting shalom, which is usually translated peace. Uh, but the word encompasses much more than simply peace. Uh, it carries the idea of total well-being and wholeness of body, mind, and spirit. So they were to pour out God's blessing on the house. And verse 13, if the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. Actually, the better translation which most other modern translations use is let your peace come upon it um, in other words if it's a worthy house just pour out your blessing uh, let them have everything that you have to give uh, if there are physical needs for healing in that house then heal them 
If they're willing to listen to your message, then give it. What he's saying is concentrate on those who are receptive to your message. Find those with open hearts. Find the places where the gospel has access and receptivity and pour yourself into that place. That's the concentration we are to have in ministry. You know, I have noticed that since the advent of social media, that many Christians seem to think that their objective is to fight and argue with unbelievers and atheists. Uh, so they spend their days in chat rooms on the internet and on Twitter throwing out what are often mean and nasty comments about the other person's lifestyle or slandering their intelligence and ability to understand a rational argument. And in the process, what they do is alienate those people and just reinforce in the unregenerate mind that Christians are just a bunch of people who want to fight and argue all the time. Uh, they don't convince anyone. And when I've pointed that out to some of them, they say, well, you know, this one guy that I debate with seems to be interested in Christ, and I think my arguments are really giving him something to think about. <laughs> well, I hope so, but I doubt it. Uh, most, if not all the time, the unregenerate are just more and more convinced that Christians are a bunch of crackpots. Uh, I really think that we ought to focus on those who are really, truly willing to listen and interested in what we have to say. Uh, they are to be our focus, and that's what Jesus says in this passage. Uh, when it comes to ministering to believers, there are pastors who are suffering every day with congregations that really don't want to hear the truth of the word. Why? Well, first, because half the congregation aren't really believers anyway. Uh, American Christianity has reached the point that many churches have lowered the standard for membership so low that unbelievers can easily convince others that they're believers. And those who are believers are often so shallow in their commitment to the word that they don't like hearing certain truths because they realize they'd have to change their behavior in order to bring their life into conformity with Scripture. And so the pastor and his wife are both hurting deeply because of the attitudes of the church members. One of the great blessings of ministering at Lakeside is that this congregation is overwhelmingly made up of people who are committed to the word and who want to learn and grow by it. Uh, so I'm committed to teach the people who want to learn the most. I want to feed the hungry heart. Uh, now I try as best I can to put the theological cookies on the lower shelf so everybody can reach them. Uh, I recently had someone tell me, you teach at such a deep and comprehensive level. And that, now that person came from a church where there wasn't much teaching of the word. So coming into this class was a bit of a shock. Um, and I understand that I can get lost in the theological jungle at times. Uh, but at the same time, I try to make it understandable. So if you ever feel like I'm over your head, please raise your hand and ask me to explain further. Uh, if I don't know the answer, I always have Frank to, to uh, help me out. Uh, but uh, I want to focus on those who want to know and understand the truths of Scripture. Now, when I'm talking to an unbeliever, I work very hard to make it simple and understandable, but uncompromising on the truth. Uh, and most often it's the truth that offends an unbeliever, no matter how nicely you say it. Uh, but Jesus told the disciples to concentrate on those who are receptive to the message of the kingdom. When they found a house that received them, they were to pour out all the peace and blessings of God on that house. And the same thing applies in our ministry today. Find those people in places where there's openness 
and pour your heart into those places. Don't smash your head against the proverbial wall. And that leads to the last principle, and, the, uh, and that is to reject the contemptuous. Reject the contemptuous. Let's read second half of 13 through 15. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. When Jesus says, if it's not worthy, worthy, take back your blessing of peace, that, that was a Middle Eastern expression signifying the withdrawal of favor or blessing. The idea is they would offer a blessing, but the response of the household would indicate whether or not it was received. If it was not received, they were to withdraw that blessing. Uh, so if they came to a house and said, peace be to you in the name of Jesus Christ, and the household was vile and rejecting towards them, then they would say, we take back our blessing from you. Uh, they would actually do that. Uh, they would confront the situation in that way by removing the blessing that they had verbally given. And so he says, if you find a place where they're not worthy, then let your peace return to you. Don't waste it on them. Take it back. Don't give them God's benediction if they're not worthy of God's benediction. Don't give them God. Don't tell them God's going to bless them. Uh, it's the same principle that we find over in Second John, where John says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Uh, in that case, it's the homeowner who's not to receive a false teacher or to give him a blessing when he's leaving. Uh, you don't say, God bless you to the cult member who comes to your door. Otherwise, you participate in his evil work. Uh, I had this happen to me. Um, a Seventh-day Adventist who lives in my neighborhood came to my door uh, one time and tried to give me one of his booklets. And uh, I told him, no, I wasn't interested. And then he asked me to donate to his cause so that he could buy more booklets to give to others. <laughs> I told him no because his book was filled with error and heresy. And he was taking it back and he asked me what I meant. So I told him he's proclaiming a false gospel, a one which mixed law and legalism in with the gospel, the true gospel, thus making it a false gospel. And uh, uh, he, he asked me why I thought that. And so I when talked about Paul's message in Galatians and explained that his how his gospel message was not the truth and it's nothing more than the message of the Judaizers who mixed law with grace and which Paul called in Galatians another gospel uh, which is not really a gospel <laughs> um, finally at the end he had the audacity to say to me so you're not going to donate to my and help me buy more booklets and I again told him no and uh, as he turned to leave, he said, God bless you. But all I said was, okay. Uh, I wasn't gonna, about to give him any kind of blessing. Uh, so don't pronounce blessings and benedictions on people who are godless. Uh, don't say, bless you, brother, to someone who isn't regenerated. God's blessing isn't to be thrown around indiscriminately. Nor is that person to live under the illusion that they are really redeemed when they're not or blessed when they're not. Yes. You don't bless them, but can you curse them? <laughs> <laughs> I've done that. Yeah, have you? I've had a Jehovah's Witness come to my door, and, and he was 
going straight to hell. And I said, well, it ticks me off because that this person with you doesn't know any better and you're taking them with you. Yeah. You need to repent because you're going straight to hell. Good job, Frank. <laughs> no, he never. You know, they do mark off homes on their maps when, and so that they, I have watched them come, when I was a kid, I would watch them come down our street and skip right past our house and go, because they didn't want to tangle with my mother. And, and, and they've done the same thing on our house. The Jehovah's Witnesses never come to my door. Uh, and the only reason this guy Seventh-day Adventist did is he lives in the neighborhood and he and I pass each other walking and spoken and things like that. And so he, he came to my door. I just wrestled with that whole issue about should I, should I have said that or not? <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, also, when we would do, like I would just give strawberries after we were strawberry picking to our neighbor that was trying to witness. Yeah. Then we'd have within a week or two, someone come to our door. Yeah. So it was really interesting. Anytime I did anything nice to them, uh, they would send somebody over. They would send somebody over. It was very interesting. Yep. Otherwise, they skipped us. Yeah. <laughs> Verse 14. He says, Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Now, that was a physical action that the Jews did. Uh, whenever they went into a Gentile country, their feet or sandals would get dirt on them, of course. So when they came back into Israel, they didn't want to bring Gentile dust into the land because they believed Gentile dust would defile things. And so before they entered Israel, they shook all the dust off of them so they wouldn't bring any Gentile dirt back in. So Jesus says, listen, you're going to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And if they won't listen to your message, treat them the exact same way you would treat a Gentile. That's exactly what Paul did in Acts 13. It tells us that when he and Barnabas were in Pamphylia, the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Now here it is. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. Uh, the Jews wouldn't receive their message. Uh, I just messed up my notes. Uh, let me find where I'm at. I accidentally hit something and away went my notes. Um, I could fill in. <laughs> the man who walks around Here. in the neighborhood on a gate talked to Bruce. Not long after he talked to Bruce and we had that conversation, he's, I didn't know about the conversation. And he stopped, he stopped me and was talking to me when I was in my car. And he asked me some basic things. Do you believe? You know? And I said, yes, yes, yes. And then he said, well, then you're going to want to read this book. <laughs> so he gave me the book. So when I, and he said, I've talked to your husband. Yeah. And so anyways, we, I took it as, I took the book as, oh good, one less person will be reading this book. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, didn't, I didn't know until after I got home that he kept asking Bruce for money for more books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then told me he talked to Bruce. Yeah. So, yeah, haven't seen him around late since then. Uh, well, the Jews, so the Jews wouldn't receive their message, so they left later, and they went to the Gentiles. Uh, that's what happened there where he says they shook the dust off their feet in Pamphylia, 
and went to Iconium. The Jews in Pamphylia wouldn't receive their message. They, they went to the Gentiles. They treat, he treated the, Gentiles like, the Jews like Gentiles and the Gentiles like Jews. Uh, he said, well, wait a minute. Does this mean that we are to reject the contemptuous? If I go to someone and tell them about Christ and they say, I'm not interested, do we just say, too bad for you, I'm out of here and leave? Is that the idea? Is that what you're telling me, Bruce? No, not quite. Frankly, a lot of us wouldn't be redeemed if that was the way we were treated, right? Uh, the assumption is that when these people had seen the disciples' miracles and had fully heard the message and been given ample opportunity to respond and their conclusion is rejection, then you leave and treat them as the pagans that they are. You say, but we don't have any miracles we can perform to make them believe. So what do we do? You have the miracle of a transformed life. Uh, you share how Christ transformed you and is still changing you. And then you live out that godly transformed life in front of them so that they see that you are different than the rest of the people they know. Uh, you may share the gospel with them many, many times. Uh, you, uh, but at some point, you have to decide that you will not go on sharing the gospel with those who are settled in their rejection against you. Uh, remember Jesus' instruction, Matthew 7, 6. We studied it when we studied the Sermon on the Mount. He said, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. At some point, when you recognize that the person or people are not interested in your message and are opposed to it, you stop sharing your pearls with them and move on to those who truly want the pearls. Uh, but when you have manifested the credentials of a transformed life, and you've shared the message of the kingdom and explained it, and yet they continue to reject it and reject Christ, then treat them like the pagans they are. Uh, don't give them the blessings of God. Just walk away. And here's the key, verse 15. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Wow. Can you imagine that? Oh. We think about the evil of Sodom and Gomorrah and how God destroyed those two cities with fire and brimstone so completely that archaeologists can't even find their remains even today. And yet Jesus told the disciples, as sinfully vile and evil as the people were in those cities, it will be worse on the day of judgment for a house or city in Galilee that refuses you. Why? Because the towns and the homes of Galilee knew more about the Messiah and heard the message of the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Sodom and Gomorrah didn't fear that, uh, didn't hear that. So when it comes on the final day of judgment, there will be greater punishment in eternal hell for those who have heard and rejected than those who have never heard the news of Jesus Christ. Just because someone has never heard about Jesus, that doesn't remove their culpability. Romans 1, 19 and 20 says that they have enough information revealed about God in creation to be held accountable. And if they should truly respond to that general revelation in a truly God-honoring, Christ-seeking way, then God will make sure they hear the special revelation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus was not speaking of those who are slow to understand or believe, but those who've heard the truth from the representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given them a clear message and authenticated it with their credentials. If they turn their backs on that and refuse to believe it and receive it, you have to eventually turn your back and walk away. 
shake off the dust and leave. In fact, you may have a Hebrews 6 situation in which it is impossible for them to be renewed to repentance. When you've done your best and they're unreceptive but contemptuous, don't waste your time. Divine judgment is set on that city and house. Jesus' words here are very severe. If you think about it, verse 15 has a lot of implications for the severity of judgment upon unbelievers in our nation. I mean, there has never been a nation in the history of the world that has had as much exposure to the gospel and the truth of God's word than the United States of America. And yet we see, all see, how this culture has rejected Christ and has turned its back on him and his word. And so there will be far greater punishment and eternal hell for most Americans than for those in the jungles of Africa or South America or Papua New Guinea who have never even heard the name of Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, what have we learned? First, the Lord sent out the 12 two by two. He said, here are the principles for an effective mission. First, a divine commission, then a central objective, a clear message, confirming credentials, a confident faith, a settled commitment, contentment, a concentration on the receptive, and a rejection of the contemptuous. I believe those are excellent standards for our service for Christ. Many of us get hit directly with those principles. People who are pastors and missionaries get a direct hit. But secondarily, it hits all of us because we all represent Christ. And as we go through these principles, we can see how they affect all of us and speak to our hearts. So let me ask you this. If God had to take these standards and hold them up against your life, would you really be a faithful representative of Jesus Christ? Do you run your life and your representation of Christ by these standards? The world has all the wrong criteria. The world would never have picked any one of those 12 men to be his apostles. They all had the wrong standards, but God has the right ones. And these principles for ministry have not changed. We're to follow them in our service for our Lord. And if we do so, folks, we will be effective like they were in their ministry. And we'll be effective in our ministry and service to Christ. And we finally finish this passage. We will move on to the next one next week. Any other comments or questions before we go? Frank, close us with prayer, please. Our Father, we do thank you for the privilege of knowing you, looking in our eyes. And Lord, you called us, each of us, uh, to ministry. And 